I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Last week we, uh, we considered Daniel's prayer on behalf of his people, Israel, and the city that stood at the heart of their identity, at the heart of their life, because that's where they met with God and, and worshipped Him. And now we consider together God's answer to that prayer. So we're going to look in particular at verses 24 through 27, the words spoken by the angel Gabriel. But I'd like to read with you first the first three verses of the chapter, just so we remember that context, and then we'll start reading again at verse 20. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And then he relates the words of his prayer. And then in verse 20 we read, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Amen. Well, that's perfectly clear, isn't it? Beloved saints of God in Christ, sometimes we wait for weeks or months to see how God will answer our prayer. Sometimes we wait in vain. We can't see how He's answering our prayers. And other times, the answer comes with clarity and suddenness that are stunning. That's what happened to Daniel as he relates to us in today's text. Over the past few weeks, Daniel has shown us a couple of truly marvelous visions that were shown to him, by which God revealed the coming interactions between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. 
In chapter 7, we saw how this world's kingdoms are like fierce beasts, threatening to overwhelm God's people. But the people of God, led by one like a son of man, triumph over those powerful and frightening kingdoms of the world. And then in chapter 8, we saw another vision of beasts, which revealed the punishment of a corrupt church that would come in the future from Daniel's perspective. And then we had a bit of an interlude as Daniel related to us his prayer. And while he's still on his knees, still confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, suddenly a divine messenger, Gabriel, comes flying to his side. Gabriel is an angel who dwells in the presence of God himself. He comes bearing the greatest of news. News not unrelated to the news that he would later share with a priest named Zechariah and with a young lady from Nazareth. Gabriel says he has come to instruct Daniel, to give him insight and understanding because Daniel is greatly loved by God. Now we've studied Daniel's prayer and that was important because we are called to emulate that prayer. We are called to humble ourselves before God and confess our sins and the sins of God's people. We too are called to confess God's faithfulness, delivering us according to a, a grace that we could never begin to earn. But we can't stop with Daniel's prayer because that prayer received an answer. And so this evening we look at that answer and see how God's messenger assures a repentant saint of restoration. You see, that's the message here. God is assuring His repentant saint of restoration. And arguably the most important part of that answer comes right up front. As he tells Daniel how that restoration for which he longs is founded on a perfect decree. That's our first point. But before we get into that, we need to clarify a bit of a translation issue. One of the most difficult parts of Daniel or of Gabriel's instruction here involves the time reference. The word that our Pew Bible renders weeks is actually the word sevens. Now the word for sevens can, although it's not usually, but it can be used to refer to weeks, which is how the ESV and the New King James render it. But it can also be used for other groups of seven, like seven years or seven months. This is one of the rare instances where I, I think the NIV actually got it right over against the ESV and the New King James, because they translate this 70 weeks, or 70 sevens, and seven sevens, and 62 sevens. Because you see, if we do as some interpreters do, and regard it as weeks, then we have to say that they're weeks of years. Groups of seven years. And then we come up with a total time here of 490 years. But God could have easily said that, if that's what He meant. And that narrows down, for one thing, it narrows down the potential application of this verse in terms of historicity. But more than that, it forces us to do some amazingly creative math to try to get this to fit 
the reality of world history. And anytime we find ourselves doing really creative math to figure out the prophecy, we're probably wrong. As is often the case, what we find here in this explanation, in this prophetic word, has several reference. Often in prophecy, we will see an immediate reference. Something coming, or something about a coming historical action that's relatively near. But then we see that there's a broader interpretation, a broader context. We know that's the case here because Gabriel refers several times to the vision of chapter 8. And the vision of chapter 8 had its culmination in the... Uh, the punishment that God's people would receive because of their corruption at the hand of the Greek leader Antiochus Epiphanes. And this answer to Daniel's prayer refers initially to that. But then in Matthew 24 and elsewhere, Jesus refers to this prophecy also. And when he refers to it, he's not looking back at Antiochus Epiphanes, but to a future occurrence, a future reference, because this wasn't intended to foretell just one thing, it was intended to foretell several things and, in fact, the whole sweep of history. So we're going to see that, we're going to examine that reality. But first he gives us the, the truly comforting aspect up front. The truly comforting aspect doesn't have to do with all of the details. It has to do with the overall sweep of the message. And that overall sweep of the message is that there will be restoration and it is founded on, it rests upon, it is secured by God's decree. We find it in verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Seventy sevens are decreed about your people and your city. They are decreed. Seventy Sevens refers to a fullness of time. Right? Seven is the perfect number. Seventy is an expansiveness of that. There is a fullness of time. There is a fullness of events. We're going to look at what those events are or what the, the culmination of them is in just a moment. But notice that they are decreed. In other words, God has determined what will come to pass. It's not accidental. It's not hidden. Unlike the, the theories of some radically liberal theologians. It's not a mystery to God what will happen. He has decreed every ruler who will arise, every trial that God's people will face, every victory that they will rejoice in. God has decreed it all and He will bring it to pass within the midst of a perfect fullness of time. What will He bring to pass? There are six details here in verse 24. Three of them are negative, three of them are positive, and in the six of them, is a fullness of blessing for God's people. First, there are, on the negative side, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. To finish the transgression. God's saying that at the end of the perfect fullness of what He's about to explain, there will be no sin. Won't that be amazing? There will be no more sin. There will be no more transgression of God's commands. There will be no more rebellion among God's people to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. That is the most 
basic and expansive word for sin right there. It refers to lawlessness, to missing the mark of God's commands. And there will be no more. God's people will be delivered from the rebellion that lives within them. And to atone for iniquity. The price for our sin will be paid. The cost will be put to an end. So that's the negative side. That's what will be done away with. Seventy weeks are decreed. And at the end, at the fullness of it, not at the initial fulfillment, but at the fullness of what is described here, the transgression will be finished, sin will be at an end, iniquity will be atoned for. Because positively, He will bring in everlasting righteousness. The righteousness, the obedience, the the perfection of action for which God's people were made will be accomplished. To seal both vision and prophet. To seal means to, to bring to a fullness, to bring to a culmination. God will fulfill all that He has foretold. He will bring to a completion all that He has decreed and to anoint a most holy place. Now, the Hebrew there doesn't actually say place. It says a most holy. The initial fulfillment of this will regard the most holy place, the rebuilding of the temple. But that's just a foreshadowing of the true most holy. Because the true most holy is not a place on a hill in Palestine. The true most holy is the place where God's people gather together, where God is all in all, where He shines over all of them. And God is bringing that to pass at the fullness of time according to the perfection of His decree. You see, what, what Gabriel tells Daniel right up front here is a promise far greater than that for which he prayed. Daniel is praying that God will restore His people from exile into the promised land. That He will take them from their scattering among the nations and gather them back together so that they can do what we're doing here and worship God in His presence. That's a glorious thing. Matter of fact, I think we sometimes underestimate how glorious a privilege that is. But God promises to do far more here. God promises, I'm not just going to physically gather you. I'm not going to just restore you to a place. I'm going to restore you to Myself. All of the sin, all of the rebellion, all of the transgression that separated you from Me, that caused Me to exile you, I'm going to do away with all that. I'm going to pay the price for all of that. And instead of all that, I'm going to establish righteousness. I'm going to fulfill all of My promises. I'm going to give you peace in My presence in the fullness of it so that you will never, ever, ever be able to be cast aside again. That's what He's promising. He's not promising Jerusalem. He's promising all that Jerusalem signified. He's not promising restoration from exile. He's promising restoration from exile. That from the start. Now, initially, it would involve returning to Jerusalem. Daniel's prayer would be answered. But from our later perspective, we can see that this could never be fulfilled with a mere return to Jerusalem because they'd go back there and they would sin too. They'd go back there and immediately they'd say, oh yeah, temple, but we need houses. Oh yeah, worship, but we need to plant crops. 
And then they'd finally get around to building the temple and the enemies would rattle their sabers and they'd say, never mind, it's fine. And then at the urging of the prophets, they'd build the temple, but then they'd look at the walls and the, the sabers would rattle again and they'd say, never mind, it's fine. When they finally got the walls built, you think everything's good. No, no, no. They sin again. They rebel again. And God has to raise up Antiochus Epiphanes to punish them again. You see, it's not a restoration to a place they needed. It's something far greater. It's what Jesus would bring. In Colossians 1, we're told in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's what they needed. They didn't just need to be restored to a place. They needed to be restored through the person of Christ to the presence of God. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's not just the Gentiles, that's everybody. He has now reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. That's what He decreed. What Colossians 1 tells us has now been accomplished, that's what Gabriel's telling Daniel God has decreed. Not just a return to Jerusalem, not just a rebuilding of the temple, but a restoration to God in all of His fullness. And so Daniel's prayer is in essence answered by what we read in verse 24. We could very truly just stop right there. Daniel has the answer to his prayer, but we don't stop there because Gabriel doesn't stop there. Because that answer is still a ways off, isn't it? Jesus isn't going to come for half a millennium yet. And so, God gives him some reassurance. Reassurance, first of all, in a foreshadowing that will give him confidence. And then, as we'll see in a few moments, reassurance concerning the period of time before the end, before the fullness of the 70. So the first thing we see is how God will foreshadow the complete restoration by a promised return. We see that in verse 25. Now, Again, as we consider how this decree unfolds, remember the nature of prophecy. It oftentimes speaks first of a near situation, but its application is not limited to that near situation. And as I said, we know that to be the case in this situation uh, by several means. We see Gabriel referring to the prophecy of chapter 8, so we know that, that this first return is going to culminate, it's going to bring to an end, or come to an end, with Antiochus Epiphanes. But then later on, we see Jesus applying this to a different historical situation, to not a Greek ruler, but a Roman ruler. So there are at least two timelines that are fulfilled in what he says in verse 25 through 27. But notice what Gabriel says here in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now notice there are three periods of time. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one week to bring to completion. So the first comprises, 70, or comprises seven sevens. It's a period of completeness, of fullness, seven. But it's brief. It's just a portion of the whole. At one end, it is marked by the issuance of a command, a decree, to go forth and build Jerusalem. At the other end, by the coming of an anointed one. 
This period of sevens pointed initially to the rebuilding of Jerusalem, begun within just a few years of Daniel's prayer. In 539, the Medes and the Persians, under the leadership of Darius the Mede, conquered Babylon. A short time later, the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Historically, however, there's quite a gap between the issuance of that decree and its fulfillment. It took time to gather a remnant of Jews from throughout the exile. I mean, they weren't all just settled in one place, right? They're settled in a whole bunch of different places. Read Ezra 2, which providentially was one of my devotional readings this morning, and see all of the different places where the Jews were settled who rose up and decided to go back in obedience to that command. It took time to get them together, to develop a plan for them to go, to gather all the resources. And then once they got there, the work was slow because they did need to build houses, they did need to build crops, and frankly, they were slow to obey. But eventually, eventually they managed to rebuild the temple. The decree went out in 537. The temple was rebuilt in 515. That's quite a time, passage of time. But even then, the rest of the city was in ruins. It wasn't until Nehemiah came and helped them build the walls, helped them conquer their enemies. The city was not rebuilt until 441, nearly a hundred years from the time of Daniel's prayer. But it would happen. There would be a fulfillment to this first division of Gabriel's prophecy, a partial fulfillment in light of the glorious goal that verse 24 shows us. But it gives us assurance that the fullness will come. The complete restoration will happen. But really that rebuilding of the temple, that rebuilding of the city, which by the way was done under the leadership of an anointed one named Joshua son of Jehozadak, the priest, and Zerubbabel who was of David's line, the prince. All of that looked forward to a greater rebuilding. A rebuilding that came not with a return to the land, but with a return to God through Jesus. This one is the true anointed one, the true prophet, priest, and king, who came to rebuild not a city, but a people. A living temple in which God Himself would dwell by the Holy Spirit. He would come to build not Jerusalem of Palestine, but the new Jerusalem, which is what we are, spread over the whole of the face of the earth, in which God gathers His people among, or within which He, he meets us. He rebuilds us. He transforms us. He puts away sin from us. He fulfills prophecy on our behalf. It is in Christ that God and man have met and have been completely reconciled. That is the Really the fullness of the first seven weeks, or seven sevens. But then he or foretells another period of time, 62 sevens. Because that return is not the end. When Jerusalem is rebuilt, there's still a whole lot of story to unfold. And even after Jesus completes His work, the people are not gathered. The nations are not discipled. Abraham's blessing has not been spread to all the nations of the world. 
And so he tells us there's a period of time yet to come before the end, before the fullness of the 77s has come to pass. But that fullness will not come to pass until a painful persecution has been brought to bear. And that's the last thing we see in this text. There's a period of 62, he says. Why 62? The first period, the first seven sevens, fulfills God's promise to restore. But then there's a period of time that brings them almost to the end. If you add 7 and 62, you come up with 69. 69 is almost the end. Not quite. There's still a little something to happen there before the end comes. That long period. It's a, it's a time when Jerusalem is built. When the kingdom is established. But it's a time of trouble. It's a time of persecution. It's a time of strife. In its initial fulfillment. This is a period in which persecution by God's enemies grows. The temple is rebuilt in 515. The enemies of God's people don't like it. The enemies of God don't like it. They seek to infiltrate. And they manage to do it. As a matter of fact, they even manage to infiltrate the temple itself. When Nehemiah comes back, he is absolutely aghast. That so many inroads have been made by people who are not the people of God, who do not love and serve the Lord, who do not belong to the covenant of God's people. He's utterly stunned that multitudes among God's people have intermarried with unbelievers who have not turned to the Lord. He's dumbfounded. He brings about a bit of a reformation among God's people. Kicks out the compromisers, overcomes the enemies, builds the walls, establishes peace in Jerusalem, but it doesn't last. Because in this world, in this period of time, sin always rises up, and it's not usually from out there, it's from in here. And so God's people continue to compromise, continue to rebel, until finally God raises up, not these piddly little enemies from the Persian Empire, no, the enemies from the Greek Empire, which overcomes the Persian Empire, culminated right around 198 B.C. with the leaders, the Greek leaders from Syria and Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes cuts off an anointed one, just like Gabriel foretells. The rightful high priest Onias, he deposes and establishes in his place a man named Menelaus, who was a Jew, but a compromiser, who wanted what Antiochus could offer, which was power. Colluding with Menelaus. That's how Antiochus managed to undermine the church, undermine Judaism. It was by the high priest, believe it or not, that he ended sacrifice. That he outlawed circumcision. That he was able to erect a statue, imagine this, a statue of Zeus on or in the temple courts. Absolute abomination. Absolutely stunning compromise. Compromise, flat out rebellion. But there was an end to this time. Just when it seemed like Antiochus had broken the back of Judaism, just when it seemed 
that Antiochus Epiphanes had ended the worship of the true God, the Lord caused his people to rise up and they drove Antiochus and his forces from the land. God's people finally were free to govern themselves and to worship as they were commanded to do. Now they were still under Greek and soon Roman leaders, to be sure. But never again until after the time of Christ was their worship compromised from without. Never again until after the time of Christ was it illicit to worship God as He commanded. So the people of God were restored, but not completely, because you see that was just a foreshadowing of the complete fulfillment of what Gabriel prophesied. Jesus points to another fulfillment with a prince who's not Greek, but Roman. In that latter age, the evil prince, the antichrist of the age, was Titus, the Roman emperor. Titus's supporters began the desolation of Jerusalem by cutting off the anointed one. Not a high priest like Onias was, but Jesus, who was priest and king and prophet all in one. It was Titus's followers. He was a general. He was the head of the Roman army. And it was those soldiers who cut off the anointed one Jesus who brought him to an end. And it was shortly after that, A.D. 70, that sacrifice was cut off never again to be restored and that the temple was made rubble and ash, a shadow whose time was over. And so Gabriel's prophecy would come to pass again. And yet even this was not its fullness. The ultimate fullness, the ultimate fulfillment of this period of 62 sevens continues today. Remember, the rebuilding of Jerusalem was just a foreshadowing. It pointed toward the coming of Jesus Christ to build the new Jerusalem, which is the church. In its fullest sense, those first seven sevens were completed only with Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to heaven when He poured out His Holy Spirit and sent the church to go gather the church from throughout the world. That's when Jerusalem was rebuilt truly. That's when the temple was established in its permanent form. And ever since then, that period of 62 sevens has been living among us. Ever since then the disciples of Christ have known trouble sometimes. The city is built. We live in it. We live in the new Jerusalem. But it's a troublesome time. And Jesus told us it would be. He said, don't be surprised when they hate you. They hate you because they hate me. He told us through John in Revelation 12, they attack us because they hate God and they can't reach God, so they attack those who love God. And that period will continue. It will ebb and flow. But always there will be persecution. Always there will be trouble. Always there will be hatred of the enemy. Until the 69 sevens come to a close. And it's in that last seven, just before the end, that things get terrible. We read about that in more detail in Revelation 20. It's at that time that Satan will build alliances with all the earthly kingdoms. It's at that time that he will raise up an antichrist with great power. It's at that time that he will collude even with parts of the church in an effort to bring down once and for all 
the temple in an effort to bring to an end once and for all the true worship of God. But then suddenly, when it looks like he has won, when it looks like the people of God will be overcome in an instant, it will end because Christ will return, fire will come down from heaven, and all of all of those who have stood against God, Satan and all who have colluded with him, will be brought to a one final end. So who is that final Antichrist? And when shall he arise? And how shall we know, beloved, to this, Gabriel offers no answer. Time and again, here in Daniel's book, in Paul's book to the Thessalonians, in John's revelation, God reveals the plan, reveals the reality that is coming, but He never gives us those final details. You see, we cannot know. We cannot set the date. Or we would grow complacent. Only God knows the time and the day and the details. But we know that the end is coming soon. We know that the seven sevens has been accomplished. We've been reconciled. The new Jerusalem has been established. We know that we're in the 62 sevens. We're in that period in which the church exists. The new Jerusalem is being filled. And we're surrounded by trouble. We know that that climactic end comes soon. But when it looks like all is lost, then the victory will be declared and demonstrated in all of its fullness. And we know, brothers and sisters, that it is all founded on the perfect decree of God which cannot be broken. So we can be watchful. But we can be confident. There's a segment in modern Protestantism that wants to lay out timelines, assign roles. Oh, well, this one has to be the Antichrist. This is the period of time in which we are. This is what we can expect to come next. No. God has withheld those details from us on purpose because He wants each and every one of us to recognize we're in the last times. The end could come at any moment. Very soon, Christ will return. We see the signs. You know what the signs are? Opposition against God and against His Christ. And as long as we see those signs, our call is to be watchful. Our calling is to be faithful. Our calling is to proclaim Christ, knowing that at any moment, that final, that final trumpet could sound. And for our friends, for our neighbors, for our family members who have not turned to Christ, it will be too late. There will be no second chance. Today is the day to fill Jerusalem. Today is the day to bring them within the walls. Today is the day to introduce them to the anointed one who though he was cut off, was raised up and now is seated on the throne above where he rules all things to bring about the decree of God. Today is the day to tell them about our King and His victory. Because tomorrow, tonight, the 77s might be at an end. God's messenger assures a repentant saint and all repentant saints that there will be a complete and perfect restoration. It's already been accomplished in principle. Jesus has won the victory. He's established the new Jerusalem. He's gathering His people even today. And very soon, all of His enemies, all of the troublesome times will be at an end. As we await that moment, how glorious it will be. 
Let us be eager to tell others what He has done and to urge them to enter the city gates with us. Amen. Father, what a a comfort it is. What a glorious reality to know that Jesus has won the victory. That the war is, as it were, at an end. And that all that remains for us to do is stand firmly, trusting in Him, and telling others what He has done. Enable us to stand firm, Lord. Give us the power to not compromise, to not turn aside, to not give ear to the evil one. And make us to be fruitful, Lord, at inviting into the walls of the city, in even to the glorious confines of the living temple of the church, those whom you have set apart for yourself. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.